The coronavirus pandemic has turned our world upside down. But 102 years ago, the far more deadly Spanish flu struck during the closing days of World War I. I'm Greg Geringer, and coming up next on the Tucson History Podcast from 1030 The Voice, 1918, The Forgotten Pandemic. As America welcomed 1918, war raged across the Atlantic. President Woodrow Wilson avoided conflict after declaring the U.S. neutral during the start of hostilities in 1914. He even won re-election by a very thin margin in 1916, campaigning on an anti-war ticket. But inevitably, the United States declared war on Germany, April 6, 1917. The first American troops arrived in France in late June 1917, after the Selective Services Act was passed. Over there, over there, send the word, send the word over there, that the Yanks are coming, the Yanks are coming. Thousands and thousands of young soldiers drafted into service were training at camps all across the United States in the winter of 1918. One of those was Fort Riley, Kansas. Camp Funston, inside Fort Riley, was the largest in the country with row after row of rapidly constructed and non-insulated barracks housing conscripts from all over, including the dusty farm towns all across the windswept Kansas prairie. Near the border of Oklahoma and Colorado was the tiny community of Santa Fe in Haskell County, Kansas. It may have been home to the first cases of a potent new strain of flu. In February 1918, the Santa Fe Monitor reported Mrs. Eva Van Alstyne is sick with pneumonia. Homer Moody has been reported quite sick. Pete Hesser's three children have pneumonia. Mrs. J.S. Cox is very, very weak. Merton, the youngest son of Ernest Elliott, is sick with pneumonia. Most everybody over the county is having la grippe or pneumonia. Dr. Loring Minor was the first to record this influenza of the severe type to the U.S. government's public health report. He noted this three-day flu wasn't typical and appeared to strike the otherwise young and healthy. Many of the farmers were poor. Their living conditions were primitive. Whether the virus originated in pigs or chickens or 17 species of migratory birds like sandhill cranes and mallards, it's never been determined. But many of the young men from these farms took this new flu to Fort Riley. March 4th, company cook Albert Gitchell was unable to prepare the morning chow and headed for the infirmary, complaining of a sore throat, headache, and chills. By midday, over a hundred others at the camp were suffering similar symptoms. As many as 500 were hospitalized at Fort Riley within a week. In three weeks, 1,100 were sick. While some residents died in nearby Haskell County, the sickened soldiers at Fort Riley did not. They recovered. But troops were moving all over the country as they prepared to embark for Europe. On March 18th, Camps Forest and Greenleaf in Georgia reported outbreaks. 24 of the 36 main army camps were affected by the end of April. Troops then boarded ships for France, carrying the new virus. Also that April, Brest, France began seeing cases. It was one of the main ports of entry for American troops. Throughout the spring, it spread to the civilian populations of France and the UK, and it spread among troops fighting the war. This included all of the Allies and the Germans as well. It continued to mutate. Spain remained neutral, and unlike the censored press in Allied nations and in Germany, Spanish newspapers had the freedom to do stories about the effects of the flu there. They also reported on the illness of King Alphonse XIII, who later recovered. 
most of the rest of the world had the false impression Spain had been particularly hard hit, and the name Spanish flu emerged. The warmth of high summer appeared to have slowed the virus's spread, but in August, a more virulent form of the disease swept through Switzerland. A U.S. Naval Intelligence officer drafted a confidential report about the disease, designated as Spanish sickness and grip. As autumn approached, this mutated form crossed the Atlantic as soldiers returned home. The first stop for some was Camp Devens, 35 miles outside Boston. Babe Ruth and the Red Sox were facing off against the Chicago Cubs in the World Series. World War I had shortened the baseball season. The series might have never happened otherwise. On September 7th, the Red Sox took a two games to one lead in the series with a win at Comiskey Park in Chicago. The same day back at Devon's, a soldier was taken to the camp hospital where he was diagnosed with meningitis. Another dozen men from the soldier's company also fell ill and were diagnosed with meningitis as well. As more and more became ill, doctors realized it was influenza. The Red Sox would return to Fenway and win the World Series on September 11th. At Devon's, the situation grew more grave. At the peak, 1,543 soldiers became sick in one day. A doctor at the hospital wrote to a colleague describing the cyanosis, or bluing of the skin from lack of oxygen, that would occur within an hour or two, extending from their ears and spreading all over the face. It is only a matter of a few hours then until death comes. A hundred men a day were dying. For several days there were no coffins, and the bodies were piling up, he stated. 757 would perish at Devon's by September's end. From there, it would spread across the nation. A Navy ship from Boston would carry it to Philadelphia. The outbreak there would begin in the naval shipyard, where 600 sailors were infected. Philadelphia's health director, Elmer Knudsen, quickly realized there was a problem. He hoped isolating the infected would be enough. But in the midst of the final push to end the war, Political pressure led to the choice to allow a Liberty Loans Parade on September 28th. 200,000 Philadelphians packed the route. Eventually, officials in major cities would shutter schools, restaurants, saloons, and theaters. In the case of Philadelphia, it would be too late. 12,000 would eventually die in a city of 1.5 million. Town after town, metropolises to hamlets, were all hit throughout October. In a scene not unlike the coronavirus pandemic, public life would grind to a halt, but the death tolls were infinitely more staggering. New York City saw 21,000 deaths during autumn. Chicago, 8,500. Cleveland, 3,600. Boston, 3,500. San Francisco, 3,000. St. Louis, even with one of the nation's most aggressive lockdown orders, had 3,000. A Red Cross report read, a fear and panic of the influenza, akin to the terror of the Middle Ages regarding the Black Plague, has been prevalent in many parts of the country. People awoke each day, fearing they may not live to see the sunrise again. So many of the victims were in the prime of life, between 20 and 40 years old. Their first exposure to a flu as a child had been during the late 19th century, when an H3 strain had remained prevalent. That H3 imprint left them utterly defenseless to deal with the H1-based Spanish flu. The virus triggered a cytokine storm as their powerful immune systems overreacted, sending proteins throughout the body, inflaming organs and filling the lungs with fluid, leading to their deaths. And there was little hope for an effective vaccine. 
While scientists had created vaccines for smallpox, rabies, typhoid, and others, microbiology was still in its infancy. Their work was hampered by the inability to even see viruses. That wouldn't occur for another 20 years with the development of the electron microscope. In 1918, Tucson was eight square miles with a population of around 20,000. By the beginning of October, all businesses and schools were closed. Public records show around 300 Tucsonans died from Spanish flu. The majority of those deaths here occurred between October 1918 through January 1919. Public health records show just over 500 deaths statewide. But many epidemiologists believe the true number is several thousand. The death tolls in many mining communities and on Native American reservations were never properly recorded. Like a forest fire after burning through all available fuel, the cases and deaths would begin to subside in parts of the country in November. Americans, many still in masks, would celebrate the end of World War I. Official government statistics show nearly 675,000 died in the U.S., 50 million worldwide. But those numbers, too, were likely very low. A less potent strain of the flu would re-emerge over the winter and into the following spring, and some deaths would still occur. Many were never officially recorded as Spanish flu fatalities. Mutations continued, each time becoming less and less potent. The killer Spanish flu would become merely seasonal. It was a traumatic and terrifying time for those who lived through it. We would remember the heroes of World War I through Armistice Day every November 11th. It would be renamed Veterans Day in 1954. But most Americans that survived Spanish flu seemed to repress their collective memories. Mothers, fathers, grandparents. They rarely shared stories about those dark days in 1918, believing it was a far better choice to leave that past behind them. I'm Greg Garinger, and this is the Tucson History Podcast. Our guest is Tucson historian Ken Scoville. Ken, thank you so much for joining us. Well, good morning, everyone. A lot to talk about in regards to what life was like in Tucson, specifically in October of 1918 when the second wave of the Spanish flu hit. How quick were local officials to act after they saw the Spanish flu spreading throughout other parts of the country? Well, I've been doing a little bit more research on this. It was interesting. One of the key authors on the history of Tucson is C.L. Sonicson. He really sort of indicated that he thought Tucson saw this coming, and some of the other southwestern towns like uh, El Paso did not uh, get activated and take some measures early. But essentially, by the first part of October, you'd see a cascading of events as a few people started dying in the town and they were feared that it was the Spanish flu again, we would get the University of Arizona closed, but students would not go home as they have done recently. They would be quarantined on campus with one of the gymnasium areas being set up as a hospital. And then a cascade of events that I said would continue. Now schools would be closed. Children had to stay at home. They couldn't even go on the street that you would see uh, people that were breadwinners could continue to work, but all community gathering spots, even pool rooms, which were a big gathering spot at the time, churches, everything had to be closed. And just like sort of paralleling what seems to be going now, masks then became the final choice that if people were going to go out and do any kind of necessary business, you had to wear a mask. 
it's come to the forefront recently that the death count in Arizona was probably quite low. 519 is what public health records list. There are epidemiologists that believe that number could be as high as 6,000. And again, what were those death numbers here in Tucson? Homer Teal, who's a very prominent and very knowledgeable person on Tucson history and an archaeologist, he thinks it might have been 300 people from just looking at some Pima County uh, medical records. But he says because information is so scattered and uncertain, probably many more than that. Where was the main hospital in Tucson in 1918? That would have been St. Mary's Hospital. St. Mary's was really the place from 1880 up even still today. But St. Mary's was the hospital in, in Tucson. We wouldn't start getting other hospitals probably to almost the 1930s. And Tucson Medical Center, that we think of as our community hospital, actually started off as a tuberculosis clinic and didn't become part of a community hospital than almost up to the time of World War II. It's been suggested that having so many people with breathing problems or tuberculosis relocating here to Arizona in the late 19th century, having those individuals here might have contributed to Arizona having a slightly higher death rate or a slightly higher case rate of Spanish flu per capita. That would, would skew it also. I don't know if the listeners are aware, at, at the turn of the 20th century, at Park and Speedway, just to the north, was called Lungerville or Bugville. And hundreds of people camped out in the desert that were, had, did not have the funds to go to something more structured or organized, but were out here just trying to save their lives. So those people would st- get, a lot of them would get better, but they would still be vulnerable to this uh, Spanish food we're talking about today. What cemeteries were serving Tucson at that time? And do we see 1918 or 1919 appear on gravestones more often than, say, 1915 or 1920 or whatever? Our major cemetery up on Speedway and Miracle Mile opened around 1910. So that would have been the burial area. And just made me think of this again. It's been Oh, probably 25 years since I did this with students. But we would go out to the oldest section where uh, where Fort Wall comes into Oracle Road and Evergreen Cemetery there. That quadrant that faces on to Oracle Road is one of the earliest. And students used to record the dates, and they noticed this, and then they would chart it. That there were a lot more deaths in 1917, 18, and 19. Then we'd go back to the classroom, and we'd talk about it, and they finally would discover World War One and the Spanish flu. So so there's a, certainly a trend line you can look at the graves there that would support that information about increased deaths. And the other thing is, and Homer Teal has done a lot of research about the Spanish pandemic and looking at it today, and a key factor when you had to dig something up because of road windings or other things that have gone on that you've gone into burials or other cemeteries, this would be probably more applicable to smallpox. Everything in people's pockets was left there. Even their clothes and everything was all thrown in with the grave. So if you dug up a grave that had everything in it, even your wallet or whatever, people were afraid to touch anything. So everything went in the grave, and that was it. That would be a prime indicator that there was some kind of major pandemic or disease that was going on. Let's break away from Tucson and talk about all the mining communities in southern Arizona. They were really hit hard in 1918. Right, and I think what this is showing us that that uh, people staying distance from another person is a key figure to protect yourself. And when you're in a mine and everybody's in the carts and uh, ore cars going in and things, 
you're in such close quarters that you're going to just see spread happen. And another thing that likely contributed to the tremendous undercount of Spanish flu deaths in Arizona was what was happening on reservations at the time. I think all this goes back as we study today. What do people have as their own resistance factor in their bodies? And Native Americans, whether when the Spanish came out or all the different waves of Europeans, the Native Americans took the hardest hit because we were bringing things to this new world that they hadn't been prepared at all for, exposed before. So now we're still seeing that same effect. And when we're looking possibly at counts, we think maybe 6,000 deaths for Arizona from the Spanish flu, but 4,000 are Native Americans. So given the proportion of how many Native people were here versus other people, you can just see that continuing sadness of not having their kind of immune situation to deal with these things just continues. Another thing I think that's interesting, Ken, is that if World War One weren't happening in 1918, this powerful flu might have never caused the devastation it did. You might not have even had the mutation that occurred in Europe that made the second wave that came back here so incredibly awful. And it probably wouldn't have even been called the Spanish flu. Oh, I, there's no doubt in my mind that those were the... The, the dominoes that would fall that would bring this to just just as recorded, maybe possibly the worst pandemic in the history of, of, of mankind and given the numbers because everybody was over there. All the different countries, soldiers were over there. Everybody was in trench warfare and then coming back on ships and trains and all this. It was just a, a cataclysmic storm of events would make this as bad as it was. I mentioned this earlier in the portion of the podcast that precedes our talk. It seems that so many people that lived through the Spanish flu just tried to forget about it when it was all over. My dad and I were recently talking about my great-grandmother and great-aunt. They were both teenagers in Kentucky in 1918, and he doesn't recall either of them ever speaking about it at any point. And I, I think that would be characteristic because typically horrible events in people's lives, and I think the, the best one for this country, and I shouldn't say the word best, but the, the saddest one was the Civil War. When the Civil War was over, people did not want to even talk about it for uh, for decades. And one of the, and I know I've done a lot of research and written a paper about Matthew Brady, who was the Civil War photographer, and he took thousands of pictures, documented the Civil War, and he nobody wanted to even see see a picture of the Civil War, and he lost a tremendous amount of money because nobody was interested in these, and it took almost 25 years before people got interested in the Civil War and were able to acknowledge it happened. So the same kind of thing about, let's just not talk about it, it was in the past, let's forget it. It takes decades before people will really start to talk about major, major cataclysmic events in their lives. Tucson historian Ken Scoville, thank you so much for joining us today and giving us some great insight on 1918, the forgotten pandemic. Sure, be happy to help in the future, too. Thanks very much. I'm Greg Garinger. Thanks for listening to the Tucson History Podcast. It's a production of 1030 The Voice and Bustos Media.